Today's scripture is Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to them, We are able. He said to them, You will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, this is not mine to grant, but this is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard it, they were angry with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I have to start this morning by mentioning the funniest thing in this scripture passage that Keith just read for us. Did you notice that it's the mother of James and John that comes asking for their great reward? It's the mother. Now, we can find this exact same story in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 35. Go ahead and write that down. And after worship, you can pull out your Bible and compare the two stories, Mark 10, 35 to Matthew 20, 20. Same story. When you read them, you will see that in Mark, you find almost the exact same dialogue as in Matthew, but in that Mark version, James and John ask Jesus the question for themselves. Can you promise that we will sit at your right hand and at your left in your glory? Now, most biblical scholars will tell us that Mark was written first and that Matthew, probably both Matthew and Luke, had a copy of the Gospel of Mark when they sat down to, wrote, to write their stories 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus died. Now, I can't help but wonder, if Matthew had the story from Mark, why in the world did he add in a character to his own story? Why did he put James and John's mama in the story? Why have her step in to be the one to ask Jesus for this bold thing? Now, I don't know the answer to that question. I'd be interested to hear what you think. If we were in Bible study together right now, I'd ask you to talk it through. I don't know. Maybe Matthew thought that it wasn't quite as greedy for the sons of Zebedee if they didn't ask for themselves. That somehow it looked a little better to the other disciples and to us if their mama came along and it was just her trying to angle for the best that she could get for her boys. But the picture that I have when I read the scripture, it just tickles me. I just imagine this woman, this dear woman, who watched her sons give up fishing with their father so that they could go and follow Jesus all around Israel. This woman, she comes and she kneels before Jesus. And I imagine her sons, two fully grown men, standing sheepishly behind her. I imagine their heads down and their hands kind of fidgeting because they know that once their mama decides to do something, there is no talking her out of it. And she says down there kneeling, Jesus, 
Jesus, can't you just make sure my boys, my babies, can't you just make sure James and John are set forever? Will you promise to take care of them? Will you just go ahead and promise to me that you'll put one of them at your right and one of them at your left in your kingdom? And in my head, James and John stand behind their mama blushing and rolling their eyes and quietly hoping that Jesus says yes. And Jesus does not say yes. He says no. It's not up to him, he says, the rewards that people are going to get in the next life. That's up to his father. Basically, it's going to be sorted out later. He says, don't worry about it. Now, the other ten disciples, they're pretty upset, of course, that James and John tried to go and snag these seats of honor in the afterlife, that they tried to be promised a place of greatness. The disciples do not care a bit that it was Mama Zebedee that came and asked for this thing. But the argument between them, it gives Jesus a chance to repeat something that he's already told these guys once before. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, Jesus himself, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lays it out right there with clarity, with plainness. You know, sometimes Jesus, he'll speak in parables, and we have to interpret them, and sometimes he uses metaphor, or he uses allusion to get at his point, but not here. Here he is so clear, he is so straightforward. Whoever wishes to be great must be a servant. Being first means being ready to serve others. That was the way Jesus went through the world, and that is the way he asked his followers to go through the world as well. And reading it here today, 2,000 years later, 2,000 years after Jesus had to tell the Zebedee family no, reading it here, we have got to admit to ourselves that we still have a really hard time with this, though maybe for a little different reason. Most of us here are not angling for the best seats next to Jesus' eternal throne. Instead, we, we mess this up right here and right now. We don't worry so much about the afterlife. We mess it up here about how we consider greatness, about who we consider to be great. And we really, we, we do a pretty poor job of lifting up those who serve. Think about the people who serve among us the most. Those who clean up after us. Those who cook our food those who tend to our babies, those who nurse our elderly, they are among the lowest paid people in our economy. We do not reward them with greatness. We do not lift them up for recognition. Often we even neglect to say thank you to them. Instead, we reward with wealth and honor those who entertain, not those who serve. Think about it, the people we call great are people who have a unique talent for acting or singing or athletic performance. We make great people who are beautiful or funny or powerful, not those who serve. So Jesus' simple statement that whoever wishes to be great must be your servant, it flies in the face of almost everything we see in the world around us. Jesus asks us, instead of seeing like the world sees, instead of asking for things like James and John came asking, Jesus asks us to see the world through his eyes when we look for and when we ourselves aspire to greatness. Like, 
I suspect Jesus would want to call great this man that I met several years ago in Wichita when I was volunteering for a place called United Methodist Open Door. Now, that's an agency of the Great Plains Annual Conference that does food, clothing, and shelter in Wichita. And I was there for the day with a confirmation class, and we were hanging out in the sacking room. We were working food distribution, and the food pantry at Open Door works much like the food pantry here at the Tri-City Food Pantry and Papillion does. Uh, families can come in and they get kind of a prepackaged sack of food. Well, while I was there, I, I met this man named Michael. And I didn't really notice at first what he was doing. He was just hanging around the sacking room a lot, this, this room where the sacks were prepared. It was a pretty slow day for clients that day we were there. And so Michael, he just kept busy doing all kinds of stuff. I realized after we'd been there a while, he had cleaned up basically every nook and cranny in the room. He had organized every shelf. He had prepared the room for this onslaught of clients that never came, but if they had, we would have been ready thanks to Michael. It was obvious to me he'd been in the sacking room many, many, many times before, and I didn't need to even see his plastic pre-printed name tag to know that he was a regular volunteer. So in a quiet moment, I asked him, I said, how'd you come to volunteer at Open Door? He continued to work while he answered me, and he said, a long time ago, I used to come here to get food. I was in a bad way, and I needed help. I don't know what I would have done without this place. When I got my life straightened out, I started volunteering. I wanted to help other people, to give back, you know, like people had given to me. He said it like it was no big deal, but I could tell it was a big deal, that he had other people who were kind and generous to him when he needed the most, people who had reached out to him when he had no way at all to pay them back. And now years later, he wanted to extend that same service to others. I'm pretty sure that Jesus would have been ready to call Michael great and to give him a seat of honor. And Jesus makes clear in this passage that service is not optional for people who follow him. If we want to be like him, he wants us to live lives of service, just like he came to serve and to give his life for others, to give his life for us. You know, for the last four weeks here at St. Paul's, we've been talking about God's grace. We've been talking about how God gives freely and generously, about how God gives this gift of grace that transforms our lives. We receive God's grace as our eternal promise and as a free gift. And what God asks, once we've received that gift, is that we give that grace to others. I wonder, have you ever given someone a gift, say for Christmas, that you were so excited to give them that you had thought about for a long time and you had purchased it especially for them and you give it to them with such joy and then you go back to their house in like May and you find that gift sitting in their spare room, unopened, still in its original packaging? It's a terrible feeling. It's a terrible feeling. When we give people a gift, we want them to use it. And that's true with God, too. God has given us this gift of grace in our life. God pours out grace on us so we can feel secure and loved and saved. And God wants us to use that gift to make change in the world around us. God wants us to receive the gift of grace and then in turn bless others with our time and our energy and our talents, giving as freely to them as God gave to us. That's the path of discipleship. That's the path of greatness to those who follow Jesus. I said Jesus makes it clear that service is not optional 
for his disciples. But that doesn't mean it has to be drudgery. It doesn't mean it has to be awful or painful. And I suspect many of you know well that serving others is actually a way to find joy, to find satisfaction, to find hope. Over the course of my ministry, I have been able to experience this again and again, moments of service that become some of the best moments that we have. Way back in 2006, in October of 2006, I got to go to New Orleans, and that was 14 months after Hurricane Katrina hit. I was there with a team of about eight adults from the church I was serving, and there was still so much cleanup to be done at that time. I spent a good part of my week scraping up ruined tile out of a flooded house in the Ninth Ward. Now, my team, we never saw the homeowner. We don't have any idea what their story was or how far they had had to flee from New Orleans. But the other work team, they got really lucky because the house that they were working on had a homeowner who was still in the area. And part of the work in the house they were working on was to go up to the attic and pull down some of the possessions that had actually survived the flood. And then they got to see the moment when the homeowner came back to retrieve those meager belongings 14 months after the storm. From what I heard in that moment, there were a lot of tears, both from the homeowner and from the work team. It wasn't really tears about the stuff, I don't think. It was more tears about the kindness of strangers that would drive down from Kansas to help clean up. And from the work team, I think they were tears of compassion and empathy, tears of gratitude for being able to serve someone else. And I know that that moment of shared tears, that that meant more to the work team than any pay they could have ever received for that work. The servant life, the life of serving others, this work of serving others, Jesus instructs to us, it's, it's our work as individuals, and it's also our work as a church community. It's an essential part of our purpose here as a church, as St. Paul's United Methodist Church, is to bless others through acts of service. If we want to be great as disciples, if we want to be great as a church, Jesus makes plain to us that the road to that is through service. Now, if you've been around St. Paul's very long at all, you know that there are already so many ways that we try to live this out. We collect regularly for two different food pantries. Our missions committee regularly brings up ways for us to donate to others. You all participate every year in Brush Up Nebraska. You support Camp Fontenelle. In 2020, you jumped in wholeheartedly when we started a diaper pantry that is helping families here in Sarpy County each and every week. I know in 2019, you were so generous to flood victims here in the area, and just recently, you've given generously to help people pay their mortgages that are suffering from COVID-related layoffs. You have a strong sense that we're here to do good for other people, to lift others up, to serve, and I'm so grateful for your generosity, and I am proud to be your pastor, St. Paul's, but I also know that we aren't tapped out yet that not everyone has been involved in these works of service. So I just want to remind you today what Jesus told us, that service is the very heart of what we do as disciples and as a congregation. It's our path to greatness. If we want to be great, we are to serve. We are to give to others without thought of compensation or recognition or reward. And that goes for the way that we approach each other inside this congregation, asking, how can I serve you? It goes for the way that we welcome new people into our community, asking, come, be a part of this place. How can we serve you? 
It goes for the way that we reach out to other people in our community who will never come in our doors. And I hope this morning that you hear this call to service, not as just one more thing to put on your long to-do list that you're trying to get done in the middle of a pandemic. I hope instead you hear it as an invitation, this chance to orient ourselves to the way of God in the world. I hope that you hear it as an invitation, an invitation toward hope, and a reminder that when we reach out to others in service, it lifts our spirits, our minds, our hearts. God doesn't try to orient us toward a way of life that will weigh us down. Instead, God asks us to do things that will build us up and bring us joy. This fall, I have started meeting with a group of local pastors, folks who are still really early in their ministry, and so they have to have an official mentor as they work through credentialing, and for some reason they chose me as one of their official mentors. Well, we had our first group meeting over Zoom a little over a week ago, and uh, we took time in that meeting to share a little bit about our call stories, about how it was that we came to this place of being in full-time ministry. And there are six people, six people, (laughs) Okay, Amy. Six people in the group uh, besides me, and four out of that six have as a part of their call story, central to the story of how they came to full-time ministry, four out of the six of them uh, had the, the song, Here I Am, Lord, as a key part of their story. It's a hymn that we have in the United Methodist Hymnal. Four out of the six of them had this moment in their lives recently when they heard or they were singing that song and they were able to say yes to God's call on their life. And I was just amazed at the commonality among them. I don't know how well you know that song, but it is a song all about service. It's a song where God imagines looking out for people, looking out over people, and asking for help to carry God's love and God's light to the world. And God asks this question, whom shall I send? The first verse starts, I, the Lord of sea and sky, I have heard my people cry, all who dwell in dark and sin, my hand will save. I, who made the stars of night, I will make their darkness bright. Who will bear my light to them? Whom shall I send? And then the chorus answers the question, saying, Here I am, Lord. Is it I, Lord? I have heard you calling in the night. I I will go, Lord, if you lead me. I will hold your people in my heart. It's actually the third verse of that song that I love the best that gives me the goosebumps every time. It says, I, the Lord of wind and flame, I will tend the poor and lame. I will set a feast for them. My hand will save. Finest bread I will provide till their hearts be satisfied. I will give my life to them. Whom shall I send? Here I am, Lord. Let us all say in our pursuit of greatness, here I am. Amen.